Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for coming in and tuning in to the weekly podcast. It's great to have you all with us from wherever you are around the world. As ever, we've got a lot to cram in during our time together. Before we start, thank you those who came to the two shows I did, live shows last week in real life, you know, seeing people for real. Um, and it was great. Oh, this beautiful, beautiful venue, the Abbey in uh, Suffolk. Uh, it had a sort of magical quality to it on a gorgeous sunny evening. And then the great Rope Tackle uh, Centre in Shoreham the next day. Wonderful to see people there again. It's one of the places I go to regularly because it is just great. The audiences at both were so engaged. It's exciting. And if you happen to be listening to this on a Sunday uh, and you're in the Greenwich area, near Greenwich, you know, or in London, anywhere in London, I'm on at the Greenwich Theatre on the uh, Sunday evening. That's Sunday, July the 18th. Some of you won't be listening to it until it goes out. But if you are come along in real life uh, and have some fun. Okay, well, look, the questions this week from you uh, were so good, I'm going to focus mainly on them. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to sort of meander off all the key topical topics, all the questions were on, all the urgent topics. So, And because I reflected last week at considerable length on Freedom Day, Johnson's Freedom Day, um, I don't want to do so again because you've heard my views on that view of freedom, in inverted commas, a term ubiquitous in politics and utterly distorted in virtually every deployment of its use, the term freedom. But um, I just want to reflect for a second on the symbolism of uh, the Satch, you know, Johnson's new favourite at the moment, get me the Satch, get me the Satch, because the Satch... Uh, in, agrees with the Prime Minister who's just given him this job back in the Cabinet on the whole. Get me the Sag. And there on Freedom Day, the Sag will be self-isolating. And presumably, and by the time you hear this, you will know more about it, uh, other members of the government, maybe Johnson himself, will be having to self-isolate because uh, the Sag and Johnson uh, met on the Friday, I gather. So presumably he'll be pinged. Everyone else seems to have been pinged. Um, so, you know, maybe all of them will be self-isolating as Freedom Day comes on the Monday. What a reckless situation we're in. The FT on Saturday led with the fact that the world views this latest British experiment with horror because in this sort of high infection rate that seems to be almost being accepted or encouraged, other variants might surface. And then we're back to uh, square one again. And to some extent we are, isn't it? it it's like a sort of farce that uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, you know, the, the British government, Johnson and other ministers, said, carry on as normal, go to football matches, shake hands, you know, go down to the pub. Uh, then the then Health Secretary Hancock got the bloody virus, had to disappear. Famously, Johnson got it. And now here we are as they announce Freedom Day, the unveiling of constraints, putting huge pressure 
on every individual and institution to decide for themselves what the hell to do next. Um, and the health secretary has to disappear. It's almost symbolic as the government steps back from its responsibility to keep people collectively as safe as possible. The health secretary disappears uh, from view uh, in isolation. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just so reckless. Um, but I discussed that last week and some of the questions refer to it. So if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to go straight to the questions because they are um, all relevant. Some are about the latest uh, developments uh, on the COVID front. Also last week, uh, we looked at the relationship between sport and politics and specifically football and politics. And I argued that connections, when they happen, are fleeting and don't last very long and have no long-term political significance. So to take the example we explored last week, the England football team, currently, because they got to the final, frankly, uh, I doubt if it would happen if they were knocked out very early on in that competition, are justifiable heroes. And in that uh, heroic uh, prism, uh, they have influence on current debates, like taking the knee. But by the time of the general election, uh, what Harry Kane did or what uh, Marcus Rashford says, I suspect I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But on the basis of past evidence, um, that will not feature much in a general election. And indeed, I remember in the December 2019 election, Gary Neville and others uh, putting out videos on Twitter and elsewhere saying, uh, vote Labour. Uh, well, we know what impact that had on the December 2019 result. Anyway, so I've mentioned that because um, some of the questions are about this very theme. Uh, David Gelber has got in touch. David, who is a senior figure at the Great Literary Review, a wonderful, elegant uh, magazine of book reviews and writing. Uh, he says, I've just been catching up with your latest podcast. Interesting what you say about football having no effect on politics. You mentioned in passing Corbyn's and Starmer's support of Arsenal. I know you're a Spurs fan, as I am too, though I follow them from the results column rather than from Park Lane Live these days. Very wise, David. Keep keep your distance. Um I'm a season ticket holder. Uh, I had doubts about renewing, but here we go again. Um, although whether we'll be allowed in by the start of the season, I think is questionable uh, because of this virus. Uh, anyway, David says, I wonder whether you think in uh, microcosm, Spurs fans might think twice about voting for the likes of Corbyn and Starmer simply on account of who they support. Uh, I don't think so, David. To be honest, I really don't. Um, who else have been key football fans? John Major, didn't he go to Chelsea? and made quite a lot of it. Formed a friendship with David Meller, who was also <coughs> a committed Chelsea fan. Well, I don't think in 1992 um, people didn't vote for Major on that basis. In fact, he got a huge number of votes out on that election. Um, so no, I don't think so, actually. Uh, David, it's, it's an example where there is no crossover. 
Anyway, he goes on to say, with Corbyn, there is the further and possibly unanswerable question of whether the claims of anti-Semitism, by the way, there's quite a few questions about Corbyn coming up, uh, might have affected Spurs fans' attitudes because of their self-conscious adoption of a Jewish identity. Well, as we know, uh, Corbyn and anti-Semitism was a theme at the last election, uh, David, but as you know, it extended well beyond Spurs fans. Um, so again, I disagree, but it's interesting. And then he says there's the case of Sol Campbell putting himself forward as a Tory mayoral candidate. I can't believe even Tory supporting Spurs fans would have paused at putting a cross by his name had it been on the ballot paper. Um, yeah, well, I think it would have been a long pause, actually. Uh, so, uh, Sol Campbell, the idea of Sol Campbell being uh, mayor, yeah. I mean, because the context is he defected to Arsenal in this world of and language of defections, having been Spurs captain. Um, he would have been absolutely hopeless as a mayor. I forgot that. Yeah, he contemplated being a Tory mayoral candidate. Um, this is where, again, the crossover fails. Being a foot good footballer is not a qualification for being a politician. It's one of the weird things in modern British society and in America. You know, so like footballers get chat shows, don't they? You know, because they're good at football. So, oh, yeah, give um, Ian Wright a chat show. And, you know, of course, these things flop. He's good at football. But that's the world we're in at the moment. David, thank you very much. David said he wrote some time ago about Prime Minister's questions and whether there is too much time devoured with people, the two leaders at least, paying tribute to various people and things that have happened during the week rather than getting into the nitty-gritty of the exchange. I'll reflect more on Prime Minister's questions when or if it returns to normal. Uh, there's a question about that later on in here, actually. Now, on to the other big running theme. And we, of course, have um, correspondence in France, the travel situation with you know, France now being in this amber plus uh, from Dominique Jewell, who says, in the context that France has just made it easier for UK citizens to travel there, would you agree with some of the following? Given that the vast majority of the beta cases are in the French overseas territories, I hadn't realised that actually, thousands of miles away, and it's the Delta variant which is rapidly gaining traction in France. The decision of the UK government forcing quarantine on travellers from France to UK is very odd. Agreed, Dominica. Yeah. Um, so this, they, they, you know, there's been this briefings. Oh yeah, we're really worried about this other strain. Well, apparently this other strain, miles away from the mainland of France. So. Some weird things are going on behind the scenes in uh, Whitehall or Number 10 at the moment over this pandemic. You know, one minute, Freedom Day, Freedom Day. Then the Satch, where is he? And now, of course, uh, the sort of travel bans hardening as things open up within the UK, which has one of the highest rates in the world. Infection rates. Uh, the UK government, this is Dominica, in ditching all restrictions at home, whilst at the same time tightening them on inter tra international travel, presents another oddity. Yeah, it's all odd. It doesn't make sense. Um, this loosening up 
well, we discussed it all last week, but and yet this tightening is um, just weird. Anyway, Dominique says, continuing to thoroughly enjoy your podcast. Thank you very much. My favourite, in fact. Well, I'm thrilled. And thank you for giving the perspective from France. Uh, there were some other details in the email, but uh, if it's okay, Dominica, we will um, move on because we've got some other interesting themes. Yes, now, one of the other things we discussed uh, last week is uh, prompted by a good question, was politicians in wrong parties. Uh, and I was kind of trying to think of some. Anyway, uh, Scott Crosswell writes, on the topic of politicians in the wrong party, how about John Reid? A Blairite, he believed that Cameron was right to form the coalition in 2010 and supported him in the 2011 AV referendum. Well, actually, on that front, Scott, I can tell you, loads of Labour politicians opposed PR. And it wasn't PR, electoral reform in that referendum. Um, also, have you... Cons oh, it was so, oh, yeah, he says, have I considered writing a book on general elections throughout history like you did with the Prime Ministers? Well, Scott, I've got another book coming out in September, which I'll be talking about on this podcast quite soon. But I have given some thought to either doing a series of talks on general elections. Um, a bit like the kind of uh, improvised BBC talks that you can get on YouTube or the iPlayer sometimes, uh, which might make a good book at some point. That's a good idea. But back to John Reid. Um, <clears throat> he wasn't... Actually, John Reid had a very interesting trajectory. He was, I think, for a time, a member of the Communist Party, or certainly very much on the left. He then became such an ultra-Blairite that he get, got moved from cabinet post to cabinet post because he was seen as a fixer, which means he wasn't really able to do anything at all because he was only in any post for five minutes. Um, but I don't know which party you would have him in, Scott. I don't think uh, John Reid would call himself um, a Tory or a Lib Dem. This is the difficult thing about people trying to pluck them out of the party they're in. They are all there in the end because they chose to be, for a reason. Uh, now, sometimes it's quite hard to fathom why, but they did. And so it's quite hard to pluck them out and put them somewhere else, which is why defections and forming new parties are such traumatic things for people to do, those going about doing it, and why it happens so rarely. Um, okay, now, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Vicky Chapman writes... Um, that, um, you, you know, I well, let's I'll tell you what I'll summarize Vicky's view. Um, there are some within the party, Labour Party, who continue to call for Corbyn to be reinstated. It is a very parochial approach. Since his suspension and expulsion from the PLP, there has been little or nothing in the media about it. Whatever the failings of Labour at the moment, it's not being seen as a party riven by allegations of anti Semitism. Had Starmer not acted, it would be. Um, okay, well, let's just deal with this as a strategic decision, Vicky, um, to suspend Jeremy Corbyn. We'll come on to the substance of it or the moral position in a minute. Uh, I don't know if any of you heard, or Vicky, you heard uh, Keir Starmer up in Blackpool the other day. Um, sort of being bollocked by various voters and Laura Koonsberg interviewed him 
And because I imagine the sort of fashionable view in the BBC is that a test of leadership would be to kick out Corbyn. She focused quite a lot of the interview she did with Starmer on that, to his obvious uh, discomfort, because he doesn't want to talk about it. Now, I said on Newsnight on the night that he was suspended from the party as a whole, he's now, suspend, he's now lost the whip in the parliamentary Labour Party, that it was an error because although Keir Starmer would be hailed as being strong by most of the commentators the following day, how does this end? Does he reinstate him, in which case he's dismissed by Vicky and others as making the wrong call? Um, or does he go as far as kicking him out, in which case it is utterly explosive in its divisiveness? Um, uh, so I, I, I just think, it, you know, Jeremy Corbyn had been getting on quietly with life in his constituency and on his vegetable patch or whatever it's called, you know. Um, no one had been talking about him, really. Um, and Keir Starmer rightly had said he was going to deal with anti-Semitism uh, with a forensic focus and was doing so. So that was the right combination. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he lost in December 2019. It's very painful for a Labour leader or any leader to lose an election by a big margin. He was largely peripheral and then he was given a stage. And so I just think it was misjudged. But this brings me to another question uh, from Robert Twell. I'm a regular listener to your podcast, which I always find interesting and insightful. However, I'm surprised that you believe that Jeremy Corbyn is not an anti-Semite, as I think the evidence against him is overwhelming. I know you have other listeners who share my view. I'd be grateful if you could say why you think we've got it wrong. Well, I'm, I don't, you know, say with certainty that you have. You just have to make judgments on these things. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been well known as an MP since 1983. Um, and there's a very sort of odd critique of him, um, given, you know, some of his approaches to foreign policy, some uh, regard him almost as a pacifist, I think with quite a degree of accuracy. Um, and, and yet at the same time, he's portrayed as this violent anti-Semite and not, it doesn't quite add up. One of the things that interests me in this podcast and politics more widely is to try and get beyond the caricature. And so, for example, with Blair, it doesn't make sense to call him a war criminal and then look at how much time he spent trying to get peace in Northern Ireland. If he had this bloodlust match the two. And you know, Jeremy Corbyn is obsessed about Palestine, partly with good reason. And that at times has uh, led him to appear on panels with kind of other people who are clearly vile and dangerous or were terrorists or whatever. But no, I don't think he is. But I don't claim to know. How can I? But equally, I don't see how an E of you out there who think he is can be sure and why wasn't it a huge issue in the kind of well in relation to him in the 80s and 90s and so on before he when he was a backbencher 
you know, I mean, I know it was only a backbencher, but it should still be an issue if there's a Labour MP who's anti-Semitic. And yet people who knew him well then, including incidentally Margaret Hodge, who was a leader of Islington Council for parts of the 80s when Corbyn was the Islington MP, didn't make that claim then. So did he change? Was he always like it? And she only really, you know, it doesn't all quite add up to me. But anyway, um, it's such an emotive topic. And thank you both for those uh, questions. Uh, Jeff Strange has come uh, back from uh, some time in Dublin. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, he says, I can heartily recommend to any of you podcasts out there. Oh, we're podcasts. Wow. Uh, that the best way of listening to the Rock and Roll Politics podcast is with a plate of fresh oysters washed down with a pint of Guinness outside the bar overlooking Carlingford Low, is it? Uh, sublime tastes to quell in all the senses in one. Oh, yeah, what a what a great image you conjure up there. Uh, I really want to go to Dublin for reasons, actually, that you kind of come to in a minute in your email. Uh, anyway, Jeff says, Ireland, along with most countries in the U EU, adopt PR as opposed to first past the post. Maybe it's the Guinness, but political engagement in Ireland seems more nuanced, more generous, and less antagonistic generally. Yes, there are big issues that generate fierce debate, but on the whole, there's an eloquence of political discourse severely lacking in the UK. And By the way, Jeff mentions he's going to be out there. June the 16th, 19, uh, uh, what, I'm going on at 90, 2022, Bloomsday. And he says, got to read Ulysses. Well, actually, I'm going to start studying Ulysses in January, getting ready for Bloomsday. So see you there with the, I don't like oysters. See you there with the Guinness. Actually, I don't like Guinness, but I do like Dublin. I really want to go. I don't know whether first past the post explains the political culture in the UK compared with other countries. I suppose it sets up a kind of confrontational battle uh, because you have two big parties battling it out. Um, and that because they are such vast coalitions, you have internal tensions as well. But I think it's more to do with the British media, actually, Jeff, that kind of uh, is feverish and highly charged, you know, kind of uh, feverish headlines. Uh, the BBC these days so influenced by newspapers, you know, programmes like Question Time and stuff. Now, I assume they would all still be functioning with that kind of tabloid hysteria um, under any system, but I might be wrong. Uh, I, I remain, but you're all converting me slowly, or some of you, but I still remain an electoral reform sceptic. Um, Graham Hughes, yeah. Now, Graham uh, was in touch last week saying he had defected from another podcast. You know, these defections happening in politics, podcasts, get, get everywhere. Um, and he says, thank you, Steve, for your warm words. Welcome. It got me thinking of political defectors. Now, Graham is a defector. He kind of is relating to political alternatives and how rare it is for them to succeed with their new party. Now, this is interesting. The Labour and Conservative MPs who crossed to the SDP only had short-lived electoral success. And as for Change UK, oblivion. The two Tories who defected to UKIP faded away quite quickly too. The only ones who I can think of who managed to hold on to their seats uh, were 
Peter Hayne libs to Labour and Reg Prentice Labour to Conservative. Yeah, but uh, actually, Graham, Peter Hayne uh, was not a lib liberal in the House of Commons. He was elected as a Labour MP. Uh, so his defection to Labour was earlier. Um, and Reg Prentice Labour to Conservative. Yeah, Reg Prentice, that was an odd case. Um, he moved from Labour... He was having a hellish time in his local party in the mid-70s. Uh, and, and Thatcher made him a junior minister, I think, in her first administration. But he was uncomfortable uh, in that role. Uh, I interviewed him at length. He was he was one of the MP. And the first, my first ever job was at Radio BBC Radio Northampton uh, in the mid-80s. And he was one of the MPs. I interviewed each of them for half an hour. They were all Tory, every MP in the area. And he was one of them. I did this quite a big program called The Man Who Changed Sides. And he was as uncomfortable as some of the others. But it is interesting that these changes take place. Uh, great excitement in the media, you know, political editors swooning at the bravery, in inverted commas, of these people. Um, and yet it never lasts for very long. Uh, it will take endless podcast to analyze why um and in a way the sdp was the most successful uh and yet often it said why did it fail um well it kind of for a time created an extraordinary momentum but look what they had going for it four heavyweight charismatic cabinet ministers uh labor in disarray thatcherism at its peak um, but as Graham notes, they didn't last very long and ended up uh, holding party conferences in a phone box in Great Yarmouth or something. So uh, it, it shows that the two bigger parties, for all their obvious fragilities, have a hold and a strength which is very hard to push aside. And there are positive reasons for that, that in the end, these parties are based on values and ideas um, that are enduring. It's a great myth, Tony Blair's, one of Tony Blair's myths is that the left and right no longer exists. It's only open versus closed. Open versus closed is a divide, it always has been. Look at the Corn Laws. Tariff reform in the early 20th century, Brexit. Um, but the left and right do, and they are represented by these two massive parties. It's quite hard to break through. Oh, yeah. Now, look, we've got another one about politicians in the wrong party. Daniel Shaw says, one thought for a politician in the wrong party. By the way, I've been thinking all week to give you examples. I can't think of any more. Uh, one thought for a politician in the wrong party is Nicola Sturgeon. Surely if she has chosen to, had chosen to join Labour rather than the SNP, she would by now be one of the leading lights, if not Labour's leader. I assume you mean across the UK, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, she, she is really interesting. I've got absolutely no doubt that she is genuinely on the left of centre. Um, I say that because some think she is a kind of cautious centrist, um, you know, well, maybe she is as uh, First Minister because she wants to woo as big a coalition as possible. But I've heard enough speeches from her 
to know where to place her on the political spectrum. And she is quite a radical left-of-centre figure by instinct, if not in practice in Scotland. Um, yeah, and she I've got absolutely no doubt if she had been in the Labour Party with its current lack of really big leaderly figures, um, she would be, well, yeah, I agree with you, she would have been a leader. But she can't be, because above all else, she is a nationalist. Um, and that is ultimately what defines her. So she's in the right party, Daniel. She wants independence for Scotland. Um, Labour don't. So we are where we are uh, in that respect. Um, Hugh Carr writes, uh, back to the football and politics, uh, generally agree that football and sport in general has no big impact. But we're back to the SNP as well. The, I bet the SNP are loving the pictures of Johnson in an England shirt and Downing Street looking like a Weatherspoons with St George's flags and bunting. Yeah, Hugh, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, it was so over the top and so inauthentic. Well, on one level, inauthentic. I mean, Johnson is, I think, more of an English nationalist than anything else um uh, but he's not interested in football and there they were it was oh you couldn't move for these saint george's flags um and it certainly wasn't displayed uh, bearing in mind the sensitivities about scotland and independence you um when he got so excited with his flags we're still on uh football because uh, Joanna Lata has written to say she kind of disagrees with me as well about the lack of a crossover. Um, and she points out... She points out that... Uh, uh, Marcus Rashford's pivotal role in challenging the government over providing meals for school children became a political football. There has been strong words spoken about how Gareth Southgate has true leadership qualities and some very damning words by yeah Gary Neville. Absolutely right. He's been tweeting away about Johnson's lack of leadership. I can't remember a time, this is Joanna, when young footballers have shown such dignity, a strong moral compass and humility by challenging certain cabinet ministers who distinctly lack these qualities. I'm wondering if that boundary between sport and politics has been pushed back. Uh, Joanna says, P.S. Oh, yeah, on the bread-making front. We haven't had much on the bread-making front recently. I can swear by Nigella Lawson's white sandwich loaf recipe. It works every time. I've substituted mixed grain flour for the white bread flour. Brilliant results. Wow, I might Google that. Uh, I recommend it to everybody else, apart from those trying to lose weight, which no doubt is probably most of us one way or another. Um, but thank you for that tip, Joanne. In terms of your observation, I'll tell you one thing. I look. Are you completely right? Uh, what uh, dignity and courage it's very easy to succumb to you know just keep our heads down earn all our millions go to a reception in number 10 and nod as this odd figure greets us um but they are speaking out in a very articulate and dignified way and so is gary neville and all the rest of it however does what so so some voters say, oh, yeah, you know, I really like Marcus Rashford. He's great. You know, Gary Neville, he's one of my heroes kind of thing in Manchester United supporters. And then they'll go away still and vote Tory, say. I remember in the mid-80s, I mean, you'll all be far too young to remember, Live Aid. And, you know, the Bob Geldof thing at Wembley. 
and lots there were lots of columns about how this is the real Britain, not Thatcher's Britain, Geldof's Britain, generous spirited, uh, concerned about what was happening in faraway places, big passionate supporter of more international aid, incidentally again being cut uh, this week in a, another of Johnson's many, many misjudgments. Um, and so uh, there were loads of these columns in the mid-80s following that Live Aid concert, and rock stars were the equivalent of Marcus Rashford, you know. Oh, wow, isn't it great they're not just spending their millions on swimming pools, they're out campaigning against global poverty. And in 1987... Thatcher won another landslide. And some of those cheering, Queen and Sting and all the others, Bowie, uh, McCartney at Wembley, uh, would then have gone on and voted for Margaret Thatcher in 87. So I still am not sure that there is an electoral crossover, but there is an impact in the short term when uh, footballers as articulate as that lot speak their mind. Thank you, Joanna, and for the recipe tip. Andrew Kitching. Hi, Steve. One of my early childhood memories was asking my parents what had happened to nice Mr. Wilson. I never warmed to Mr. Heath. Andrew's talking about the 1970 general election, which I referred to last week. As an example, uh, Wilson thought he might have lost because England got knocked out of the 1970 World Cup. I don't think that was the reason. Anyway, Andrew says, as Mike Smithson at politicalbetting.com reports, uh, he's, he describes it as an informative site for non-betters like me, always says, and this is interesting, and I hadn't thought about this, the 1970 election was the only one post-war to swing from a government with a healthy majority to another with a comfortable majority. Wilson had a majority of nearly 100 at the 1970 election, and then Heath won a comfortable majority. And apparently that's the only time in thinking about it, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, when you think about it, yeah, 92, for example, uh, no, 97, Major only had a tiny majority when Blair won the landslide, etc. So that would suggest that if the swing is leftwards in 2023 to, to four, Johnson is likely to be returned with a smaller majority or there might be a hung parliament at best for Keir Starmer. I hope Labour has got its lines prepared. We will hear incessant attack lines about him being in Nicola Sturgeon's pocket. Ed Miliband found it difficult to counter this line of attack in 2015. Yeah, do you remember um, the, uh, the Tory central office put out a big poster of um, Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband in his top pocket and the times printed it right on their front page as if it was a sort of news story rather than a bit of propaganda and he did struggle with it there is an easy answer in a hung parliament any governing party works with others or you can't get anything done but you rule out um, support for independence um, as you address that question and then say but of course we're working for an overall majority so I think there are ways you can answer it so if there had been a hung parliament in 2015 um, and Cameron wanted to stay on, he would have had to work with others. He would have turned to the Lib Dems again, perhaps. Um, and, well, he would have done. 
and assumed he would. But by the way, he was still planning to call the referendum. So there would have been the chaos we got with Cameron with his tiny majority if it had been a hung parliament, but a different sort of chaos. So, uh, yeah, I think there are ways of dealing with it. But it is interesting. It does show the scale of the challenge for Labour. Um, Okay, now, yeah, now this is a really good quote. This is from uh, Joe Ellis Gage, who was preparing a lecture and he came across this quote from John Locke. This is about this thing about freedom, Johnson's view of freedom, which is basically a freedom to be irresponsible, to be selfish, uh, rather than recognising that collective laws, laws that are uh, mandatory, can in itself liberate people. And this is a quote he found from John Locke in 1690. The end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of law, where there is no law, there is no freedom. So it's a kind of association, you know, anarchy. If you think about it, on a football pitch, to go back to one of our themes at the moment, football, if there were no rules, you wouldn't be able to have a game. Footballers wouldn't be free, in inverted commas, to play. There would just be anarchy. Um, so as Locke noted, all those years ago, where there is no law, there is no freedom. And on Freedom Day, Freedom Day, there will be no law in relation to protecting people, masks and all the rest of it. Uh, thank you, Joe, for that very interesting quote hope your lecture went well uh from venetia kane uh just as johnson was far too late in adding india to the red list because he wanted to go to that country it is the main reason i think why the variant is so rampant here anyway do you think there's a possibility that the reason he's removing social distancing and masks far too soon is that the mob behind him can return to Prime Minister's questions in the Commons. And supplementary to that, is mask wearing, as in the States, going to be allied to identity politics? Um, Venetia, I don't think that's why he's doing it. I think he is doing it because his instincts are that form of libertarianism. And he also knows that the papers he's obsessed with, the Telegraph and all the rest of it, and Tory MPs, uh, a certain wing of that parliamentary party, ache for Freedom Day. Um, so it's those reasons. Um, I, I'm not sure what the impact will be of a packed House of Commons um, in the dynamic of the Prime Minister's questions. Um, it, it depends how strong... Uh, there's only one more this coming week, and then it's the recess for ages till September. So I don't think that's the reason. Um, uh, the mask wearing, as in the state, is going to be, yeah, I think there is going to be a bit of that. In fact, a lot of that. I think it's going to be huge tension. And and you can see the divide already. It's partly libertarian. It's partly Brexit. It's partly, you know, on the not wearing mask side. Not wholly, of course. Um, so I think there is. But my sense is that with the virus so rampant, uh, people are going to have to do what they did at the beginning of the pandemic and, and, and just adapt themselves to try and keep themselves safe, given that the government has stepped back, at least in England. Um, 
and uh, and we'll just have to busk it. So will institutions. I remember so well the beginning of this pandemic, going up to a book festival in Glasgow with Johnson saying, uh, keep everything open. And the festival in agony about what to do because it was obvious that the virus was spreading. And they cancelled in the end as I was travelling up on the train and I was uneasy about travelling up. Um, but no one was stopping us. The government had stepped back. That was at the very beginning. And now at this point, we're experiencing it again. So on that light note, that's it for this week. Um, the, yeah, there, was so, there were lots of other things I was going to reflect on. Uh, Keir Starmer in Blackpool as part of his get out of the country and meet people. Um, that's fine. But what is not fine, I think, is to, I don't know if any of you heard the Today programme, sort of contrive a situation Remember, Labour doesn't get much attention at the moment. There was about six minutes of Labour being slagged off by voters um, and so on. Uh, you know, they've got to find a way of going beyond all this introverted stuff. But yeah, it was terrible in 2019, blah, blah, blah. And look outwards um, and uh, start forming a positive program and sense of momentum for the future but anyway uh perhaps um that'll be one for next week what well, god knows where we'll be with our freedoms um but uh thank you all so much for listening brilliant brilliant questions keep them coming oh yeah i better give the address so those of you who don't know it can uh, get in touch hold on a second here it is steve rick 14 at icloud dot com and yeah i say we've done more questions this week than usual because i think freedom day in a commas is such an overwhelming theme and we did a lot of that last week um but the questions were brilliant as ever so thank you all so much i say thanks so much those of you who came to abbey hall in suffolk or the rope tackle or are going to greenwich on sunday or have been if you've listened to it afterwards uh, do leave a review or whatever wherever you can about the podcast because apparently it means it gets more widely available as if by magic i'll see you all next week have a good time thanks so much for listening bye